Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real-life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest has more than 20 years of experience leading strategic growth for a variety of organizations such as Aetna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and Safeco Insurance. Recognized by Black Enterprise as a top corporate diversity executive and honored with the Men as Allies Diversity and Leadership Award by Career Mastered Magazine, he is committed an instrumental ally for diversity and inclusion and a champion for equalizing and elevating the workplace for everyone. Please welcome the Global Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer and Senior Vice President of Walgreens Boots Alliance, Carlos Cubia. Carlos, it's great to see you and thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to have you. And I know just for our listeners to know what you're doing, I mean, as a Senior Vice President and Global Chief Diversity Officer at the Walgreens Boots Alliance, you are doing some really incredible things. And we're going to talk about that, about really the scope and the importance of the role that you're playing. And before we do, let's start though a little bit with really who you are. Talk to us a little bit about how you got here and some of the things that have been important to you along the way. It's interesting when people ask that. I just tell people, I'm just a country boy from Mississippi, right? <laughs> uh, I came up in Mississippi most of my time. I was spent there every summer I spent in Mississippi. We ended up moving to Michigan. My mom was pretty much a single mom for most of my life, raising four kids. And when I think about the importance of that is that here's a woman that never got divorced from her husband, right, but separated and was sent off on a journey to raise four children to, to start over in a brand new state. We ended up in Michigan. And her goal was to make sure that she raised these four kids, put them through high school, college, law school and grad school and make sure that they became pillars of society and had a good life. So she took on that role and I saw her strength and determination early. And those values, I guess, were kind of symbiotic and instilled in me at an early age that you have to do something productive with your life. And so uh, that's who I am. I take the lessons that I got from my mom and a lot of the other strong women that have been in my life over the years to really drive the work that I'm doing today in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really shape how I see the world. That's great, Carlos. What are some of the values that your mom taught you that are important to you today? Never give up. Truth and honesty. You know, your word is probably one of the most important things that you can have. You know, say what you're going to do and do what you say. The importance of family. So my four siblings and I are as close as we were when we were kids. We still communicate on a regular basis. Of the four of us, I always joke with them that I'm the least successful of all four of them, right? But my mom instilled education, uh, doing the right thing and don't settle and don't take no for an answer. By the way, if you're the least successful of the four siblings, <laughs> I, I, I wonder what your other siblings are doing. I mean, you're very successful. So uh, that says a lot about them as well. So your mom had a huge influence on you and she raised four really tremendous uh, children. So talk a little bit about what happened. You went to college and did you always have kind of within you this desire to be a leader? Talk about how that formed in you. We moved a lot. For the first few years of our lives, my parents were together and then they were separated. They were together and then they were separated. And she fought hard to make the marriage work. But one of the things 
when we kept moving a lot, I was always finding new friends, new school, starting over. So one of the things I felt that whenever you do this, you have to kind of take the initiative to kind of reacclimate yourself to that area or to introduce yourself to that area and to grow a network of friends. Because I like interacting with people. I like playing with kids and learning new things. So one of the things that I found early is that whenever I would go to these new places and see a group of kids, I would just go and meet these folks and just start a conversation and then start, you know, let's do this or let's play a game and just kind of would take over and they would follow. So I had a way of influencing and motivating them to do things with this new guy that they didn't even know. And whether it was baseball or tag or dodgeball, whatever it was, I was always taking a leader. And Joe, what I found is throughout my career, as I got to junior high and high school, I always ended up in some kind of leadership position. When I got to Michigan State University uh, as a freshman, I joined a student council. As a sophomore, I became the student council president at Michigan State University for the, one of the largest dorms in, on the campus. Then I ended up running the Office of Black Affairs, which was a programming unit at Michigan State University. You know, people say are leaders born or they're made. I think they're born. I think it's innate and it's inside of you. So it's interesting, that whole question about whether leadership is born or is it grown over time, so to speak, whether people sure. become leaders. So based on your experience, certainly you've seen great leaders and you are a great leader. What advice do you have for people becoming better leaders? Or certainly even if someone's born a leader, how do they become better leaders, stronger leaders? By being good listeners. I think one of the things that makes me a good leader is understand, first of all, that I don't know everything, Right. So I listen and I learn. And then from there, I like to act. Constantly educating myself, constantly being open to new ideas, development, valuing and listening to other perspectives, I think makes me the kind of leader that I am today. My team, you know, we did an event very recently and a couple of my team members said to me, you're the type of leader, Carlos, that's collaborative and very participative. You get everyone in the decision-making process, you whiteboard things, and we all participate in the final outcome. You don't come with a preset rules and notions and are overly prescriptive on how we do things. And that's what makes us follow you is because you value our opinion and our input. And I think I've always been like that because I don't know everything. And there's a lot of things that I get from others that help me to make the decisions that lead to better outcomes. That strikes me as a huge factor, the fact that you say, you know, I don't know everything, because sometimes people have this perception that leaders are supposed to have all the answers, right? But we know that great leaders have this humility, which I'm hearing, you know, from you, which is, look, I don't have all the answers. What do you think? And really trying to engage people. That sounds like that's a, a key approach that you take to leadership. It is. I think empowering and uplifting others is another one of those areas that I think is important for leaders to empower and uplift others. And for me, all of my career, if I go back to my first management job, to what I'm doing today, there are people throughout my past that I still talk to today that says, I'm a vice president today, Carlos, because of you. I own my own business because you told me that what I was currently doing probably wasn't the right job for me. And you counseled me on what I should be doing differently. You saw something in me and forced me to go get it. So I think empowering and uplifting others, listening to others, and understanding that True leadership is knowing that some of the brightest ideas come from the most unusual places. And so value and perspective, I think, is also important, Joe. 
That's awesome. So often in leadership, it's not like a, a straight line or a linear line. There's ups and downs and backs and forth and so forth. Have you found it? Was there a time in your career where you felt like your leadership was tested or you had to really kind of dig deep and show others who you were, or kind of rise to the occasion? Yeah. You know, if I think about that for a second, there was a time when I realized that not all people value the success or are supportive of your success. There are some people that want to tear you down. I mean, that's just kind of the world we live in. You think everyone is happy for you. They want to see you do well, but there are some people that probably take stock in seeing you fail. And there was a leader many, many years ago, I was at an executive leadership conference. And this gentleman said to me, he had just become the new CEO of a very large restaurant chain. And someone asked him, as you take on this new CEO role, what are some of the things that you had to do early on to the dissenters that didn't have your back? He said, well, the first thing I do is identify them. And the second thing is eliminate them. Wow. That had to be 20 something years ago, Joe. And it still sticks out with me because he said, Carl, if they're not on board before they even know you and they understand you, then they're probably going to never be on board. So I identify them and eliminate them. The people that give you a chance and want to see you succeed, they're going to rise to the top. You're going to work with them. You're going to build relationships and you guys are going to find mutual beneficial causes to work on together. Those other ones that want to tear you down, he said he had no time for them. Now, I don't know if I'm that harsh to say identify and eliminate them, but identify them and then try and give them a little room to get on board, but very little because at that point, you have a job to do. You were hired or put in a position to lead a team. And if you spend all your time trying to bring the dissenters on board, then the people that are with you, you're going to lose them too. It's a great point because ultimately as leaders, we have to get results. And that means that people need to be aligned and willing to work together. And to the extent we don't see that in people that they're willing to do that. I guess it's almost a question, right? I mean, do you really want to be here or not? So you went to Michigan State. Now you're at Walgreens. Talk a little bit about what happened in between and what were some of the important things for you? Wow. So at Michigan State, I was a criminal justice major and I was looking to go into federal law enforcement. My dream was always to be a federal law enforcement agent and the agency of choice was the United States Secret Service. So I started down that path. I started on the path of the background investigation, the polygraph test, the treasury exam. I did all of that work and it was a long drawn out process. A lot of my college roommates, my best friend is all secret service agents and DEA. And by the time it got back to me and we were at the point where we're ready to move forward, I had already been in corporate America now for a year and a half, almost two years and didn't want to look back. So while things didn't work out for me in federal law enforcement, I still have a love for federal law enforcement. So I stay close with those individuals. I stay close with the work that they're doing. One of the things that attracted me about that is the ability to help people, to be the voice for the underserved, to be a champion for justice and doing the right thing, if you will. And I know that sounds hokey, but that's kind of the person I am. So I'm doing that now in this work. You know, As I think about the diversity, equity, and inclusion work, I fight for women's rights, LGBTQ rights, you know, eradicating racism, health disparities, all those things that keep a certain group of individuals or segment of our population down. I want to fight to uplift that segment of the population. And I do this through this work internally and through work externally. Yeah. So it sounds like really the driving thing for you is just a desire for justice, right. you know, whether it was in, in law enforcement or in what you're doing right now, bringing about justice and equality for people. So that's a great ambition. Talk a little bit about then how you're doing that today at Walgreens. So what is the scope of your role today? And what are some of the major things you're doing to bring about that social justice? Really, when you think about the role of a chief diversity officer now in today's times, 
it has expanded exponentially from what it was 10, 15 years ago. I think early CDOs were responsible for representation in the workforce, making sure that we had African-Americans and Latinos or whatever imbalance that existed was correcting that. Today, CDO in most organizations are really about overarching business development. How do we use diversity, equity, and inclusion to drive the business forward? How do you make sure that when you go to market with a marketing plan, if you're a company that advertises on television like we do, making sure that the advertisement is culturally sensitive and it's going to speak to the entire population. As a retailer, the products that are on our shelves, Joe, are they going to be products that's going to attract a wide swath of the population? Are we giving back to the communities that we do business? As a CDO, I touch all of those things. My team touches marketing, communications. We touch talent acquisition. We touch talent development. When George Floyd was murdered last year, we worked with our CEO to put together a statement to put out to talk about how we are against racism and bigotry and stand with Black Lives Matter. So we are involved and we're at the table with every senior leader within this organization to really drive the organization forward and to make sure that we're a good corporate citizen. So companies that are truly investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion like we are, I think are moving the needle. The numbers aren't there yet, but the momentum is there. And the work that we're doing, I think is pretty amazing. It sounds like it is. And certainly it's meaningful, vital work. When you came to Walgreens in 2017, what was your hope? What were some of the things you'd hope to be able to do in that role? And how has that gone so far? So when I came to Walgreens Boots Alliance, my goal was to be the chief diversity officer. I came here as a director of diversity, equity, inclusion. And there was a gentleman that was the chief diversity officer, and he was a friend of mine. I'd known him for quite a while, but he was the guy. So I came here to help his agenda and to try to build the work that he was doing at the time. But after I was here a very short period of time, he announced that uh, he had been recruited and he was leaving to go somewhere else. I had only been here maybe 30, 45 days, if that. So I was thinking, man, how do I position myself to be the successor and being so new, because there were other people that had been here a lot longer than I was, that I potentially thought was in line for the role. So uh, as we opened it up, I applied for the job. We went through a search process, and I was eventually chosen as the chief diversity officer. So that was one of those goals, was to become CDO when I came here. The other thing was to make sure that the work was embedded in every part of the organization, and that it wasn't just seen as the chief diversity officer's job to drive this work. So we've taken on an education and an awareness and an information campaign to drive this across the entire organization, Joe, where everybody is accountable for diversity, equity, and inclusion practices. And how have you done that? I mean, that's when you talk about the geographic scope of the business, you think about the 385,000 people across the platform, and you've done it in a fairly quick period of time, relatively speaking. How have you done that? What types of obstacles did you need to overcome, if any? When we talk about this work, we say there's two ways to get to people. It's through the head and through the heart, right? Either people just going to feel it, it's the right thing to do, or other folks going to say, well, it's a good business reason. It'll help my bottom line, and it'll help me accomplish my goals. So whatever method works for you, that's what we're going to get at and figure out what works. So we did that through data by showing folks all of the research that was done out in the community that supported DE&I in the workplace and talked about the ROI that it provided. 
So we provided that. We also did it by working with our board of directors on a regular basis to share with them the importance of having this strategy. I became an evangelist across this company, talking to folks about where our challenges lie, where the obstacles and the barriers were, Joe, and what we needed to do differently in order to be a best-in-class company. So to answer your question, through education, through evangelism, through recruiting champions and ambassadors to also go out there and spread the word, and by just staying resilient and pushing the envelope to say, this is what we need to do to become the kind of company that we say we want to be. So you had multi-tiered strategy. And as I think about this, this kind of an initiative, especially an organizational initiative, is a major change management initiative. Like you mm-hmm. see, you got to win the hearts and the minds of people. You want yeah, people yeah. not to have it be compliant. You want people to embrace something. Anything you learned along the way that made that easier? And not to oversimplify, but it was really meeting people where they were. For example, representation, showing folks, again, how we stacked up against the competition. When we think about representation in the workforce, we are a consumer-based organization here at Walgreen Boots Alliance. Our stores, we do over eight and a half million interactions every single day, either through digital or online or in person. So we need to understand the community. What are their needs? What are they looking for? What keeps them coming back to our stores or what stops them from coming to our stores? So by providing data that showed that we need to resemble the community in order to understand the community. That was one way. Another way was creating policies that made sense for our organization, whether it's HR policies, policies on how we recruited talent, how we developed talent. So creating policies, sharing data and research, connecting with the community, listening to our investors. Because one of the things that we're seeing right now, Joe, is that a lot of investor relations organizations are asking us, what are you doing in the area of DE&I? Because our investors want to know that you are a responsible, socially responsible company. So now investors are challenging us, stockholders are challenging us, customers are challenging us, and employees. So we need to make sure that we're responding to all of those stakeholders and constituents. It's true. And it sounds like you really have done that. One of the things you shared with me before we started was just a little bit about how some Dale Carnegie principles have helped you, so to speak, as you've approached this opportunity. Talk about that a little bit, if you would, please. Yeah. So when I think about some of the principles with this work, we're going to go back to George Floyd for a minute. After George Floyd was murdered, a lot of corporations put statements out there the next morning about we're against racism and bigotry and systemic racism. Some of it was PR statements and some of it was really a reflection of who they were as an organization and they committed to change. But one of the things that we realized is that not everybody was on board with that because some people felt that they didn't understand the movement and what was happening. Some people felt maybe this racism thing wasn't real. So wherever people were at that time, we wanted to give them space to talk about how they felt, whether you were an African-American employee, a white employee, whatever your demographic was. We wanted to create a safe space. So one of the things, as I think about one of the Dale Carnegie principles, and I think it's principle number one, it says, don't criticize, complain, or condemn. So we want to use that principle and say, if we're going to create a safe space to have open dialogue and have brave conversations, we can't judge people for their thoughts or what they have and have not done over the years. I had white males coming to me saying, Carlos, I'm not a racist but I don't think I've been anti-racist either. So I need help in figuring out what I need to do. 
So now in some circles, he may be judged to have a finger pointed at him. And now you just lost a potential ally. So we wanted to meet people where they were and try to educate because he was asking for education and help and help them along the way because then they become an ally and an ambassador for the work. So that was one principle. And I'll quickly go to another one. And that is show respect for others' person's opinions and never say you're wrong. The last four years, and I'm not gonna get political here, regardless of what side of the aisle that you were on, this country has been very divisive. Not only this country, but the world. It's the us versus them. So often, if somebody doesn't agree with you, you dismiss them. I think we should first seek to understand the other person's point of view and where they're coming from. And I may never agree with them, but they have the right to feel the way they feel. Just like you and I have the right to feel the way we feel. I'm not gonna condemn you for that. I'm not gonna criticize you for that. I'm not gonna say you're wrong. I'm just gonna say your view is different from mine and we can agree to disagree, but I can't condemn you for feeling the way you feel. When you said that, I'm listening to you, it's kind of full circle to where you started with even from a position of leadership. You said, you know, being a leader really requires listening and trying to uh, enroll people and so forth. And it's really hard to do that if we are just creating unsafe environments, if we're critical and so forth. So, you know, that respect that we need to have for each other is such a critical part of leadership and not always a part that is embraced. I think there's a stereotypical view of a leader and it's like a general or something like that. But what you're talking about really is strikes me as true leadership, how to engage. You know, Joe, one of the things somebody said to me, and it's probably been about four or five years, he said, Carlo, you used to be a vice president of sales. That was your thing. You're good at sales. Why would you go into this kind of work where it's going to be challenging and you're going to get pushback? That has to be one of the worst jobs you could ever sign up for. And they said, so what are you trying to accomplish? What do you want people to do with this work? I said, at the end, I just want people to be treated with dignity and respect. If you do those two things, everything else falls in place because now they feel like they belong. Now they feel like their voice matters. Now they feel like they've been included. So all you and I want is to be treated with dignity and respect and everything else we can negotiate on. That's right. And you can't negotiate a much if there's not dignity and respect, right? I mean, there, there's no relationship and ultimately everything comes down to, to relationship. So you've achieved a substantial amount already in a very short period of time at Walgreens Boots Alliance. If you think about, if you fast forward then, what is your vision today for where you would like to see, maybe not even just Walgreens Boots Alliance, but even other organizations? And this is something that we talk about a lot in Dale Carnegie as we talk about DEI is how do we make this real? And what's the vision of the future? And how do we really make something that is truly an equitable as much as possible, free from bias place. What's your vision for what that looks like? Well, for me, I think in the end, if we can get to a place where we can have honest and open dialogue about the challenges that face us today and not be scared and tiptoe around the real issues. Because again, until very recently, race in the workplace was taboo. You just didn't talk about race in the workplace. It was just one of those conversations you didn't have. Social issues were supposed to stay out in the community. They weren't supposed to come into the four walls of your company. Well, today, those walls have been broken down. And if you're not taking a stand as a company, then you're complicit. I've heard that from everyone. That's not a Carlos statement. I'm hearing that from a lot of practitioners that say companies are being forced to take a stand on these social justice issues, whether it's police reform, 
the sustainability of our planet, voting rights, whatever the case may be, if it's an issue that affects your workforce, then it affects your work. And so we're trying to make sure that we are creating a safe space for people to have those conversations. We started something at Walgreen Boots Alliance called Listen, Learn, and Act, where we listen to our employees and we bring them together and we have this disclaimer statement to talk about this as a safe space to have these conversations. And you may not know everything and you may hear something in here that may be a little challenging, but we want to give people space to do that. So we listen to that, those, and we listen to our employees. Then we take the learnings that we have from that. We create actions in order to make us a better employer and a better workplace. We also take that information and what makes us a better community citizen or corporate citizen. So when we go out to the community, for example, through supplier diversity, we have committed to spend 500 million this year with diverse businesses and suppliers because giving back to the community that does business with us is important because it creates an economic impact out in the community where those people create jobs and those businesses grow and then they come back and do business with us. And it's cyclical, right? So for me, the vision that I wanna create or want to contribute to creating is a place where we can have open and honest conversation, where we are caring about one another and each other, whether or not we agree on all of the topics, we work together for the mutual benefit of the company, the individuals and the planet. And where we are divided, let's just respectfully agree to disagree. That's great, Carlos. Thank you for sharing that. Who is someone who inspires you? Who's someone you, that you look up to or you'd say, this is a person who inspires me to want to be a better leader or whatnot? It may be a bit cliche, but it's my mom. I have to go back to that. This is a woman that there was no barrier or no pitfall too big that was going to stop her from her ultimate goal of creating a better life for her four children. She talked about education. She talked about the importance of family and the importance of doing the right thing always. She said, there's no compromising doing the right things. She always used to say to us all the time that our minds are like parachutes. They don't work unless you open them. She didn't create that, but she would tell us that all the time. As kids, we didn't really know what that meant. As we got older, we learned that pretty much what that means is you have to be open to new things and you can't have a closed mind about certain things. I mean, when my parents separated and we went from having a silver spoon in our mouth to figuring out where's the next meal coming from, we could have given up. And there were so many reasons for us to give up and say, you know what, you know, there are other ways that I can get back to that life. But she said, no, it's just another obstacle in this journey called life. And you're going to be manipulating obstacles your entire life in order to achieve your desired outcome. Don't give up. And so that's been my hero. Until the day she left this planet and went and took her place in heaven, she's been the one that has said to us, she's been a rock. She's been a motivator. She didn't have a college degree, but she insisted that all of us got one. And in some cases, two or three. That's how she pushed us. And where she could um, support us financially, she did. And where she couldn't, she figured out how to help us find other means and resources. But she says there's always a way to get what you want. You just have to want it bad enough. Your mom sounds like she was an amazing person. I mean, just the tenacity, the outlook that she had, the determination that she had, the love that she had for you and your siblings. It reminds me just even as a parent about how important our role is. I mean, clearly we know as parents, we have an important role. And yet 
you know, as you sit here today and you reflect back on all the different people that have inspired you, that your mom still stands out as maybe the most formative and important person. I know for me, I think about my parents in the same way as well. So hearing you as an inspiration to me, as I think about you know, my own children and making sure that I'm always the best dad I can be. And as I think about present day, this is uh, that piece around family. I'm getting ready to hit 30 years of marriage, right? Congratulations. And, uh, yeah, uh, if we make it to February. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but 30 years, right? Um, so the current day is my wife and my three kids. It's amazing in this work that I'm doing right now, how my three kids are picking up on that without me even like embedding it in their daily lives, they're picking up on it because they catch me from time to time and say, dad, you said that and you're a chief diversity officer, dad, this, that, and the other, you know, shouldn't you be, it tells me that they're paying attention. And when I think about my daughter, who's 23, she's in grad school at Johns Hopkins and just got her undergrad in Washington, DC. She's a force to be reckoned with. And that comes from the little bit of time that she had with my mom, her grandmother, before my mom passed. And I see that it was instilled in her about be confident in who you are, fight for what you believe in, don't compromise yourself and don't compromise your value system. And it's amazing how generational those messages have come through the family. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about vaccine equity distribution, because I know that's an important part. Walgreens Boost Alliance is right in the middle of the COVID vaccines and whatnot. Talk a little bit about what you're doing to ensure that there's equity around how vaccines are being distributed. As part of our role in being selected as one of the major distributors of the vaccine, as the vaccine becomes more readily and widely available, we saw through the pandemic that black and brown communities were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And if you paid attention over the last year, you saw that the health disparities came through loud and clear that exist in this country. So now that the vaccine is out there and we're distributing it, we wanted to make sure that we got the vaccine out to those underserved, underrepresented communities and in those medically underserved areas through partnerships that we have stood up, through community organizations, mobile clinics, to make sure that we're taking a vaccine to the people and making sure that they have access. But in addition to doing that, we're educating this population to make sure that the misinformation that exists around the vaccine, that we're dispelling all of those issues. And if you know, Joe, black and brown communities have had kind of a challenging relationship with the healthcare system over the years. One of those is the Tuskegee study where African-Americans were supposedly being treated for syphilis. And it turns out they were given a placebo for 30, 40 years. And some of these people died horrible deaths, terrible deaths, were never treated. So to come today into that community and say, hey, we got a special drug for you, there's distrust and there's hesitancy. So the work that we're doing right now is to kind of dispel that, to educate on the efficacy and the safety of the vaccine and why it's important to these communities to take it so that they can get back to the place where they can hug their loved ones, where they can visit their family and friends, and we can get back to some sense of normalcy in this country and across the globe. So vaccine equity is important for a company like ours, especially as a major distributor. Well, congratulations on that work. I mean, that really important work and doing the right thing. And as I think about even what you had talked about back in college, thinking about being in federal law enforcement, really about justice, it seems like you're really working to do that throughout internally within the Walgreens Boots Alliance, externally in the community. So that's really outstanding. And we thank you for that. Anything you'd like to offer to our listeners as a kind of final piece of thought or advice? So a couple of things, I guess. 
as I think about these times that we're living in right now, I tend to listen to a lot of podcasts, right? So one of the things I heard very recently is a, uh, she's a chief marketing officer. I think the company is Leo Burnett. And she talked about if you can just be one thing right now, just be kind to everyone. It's something, a statement as simple as that to me means a lot because that's all people want. They just want to be treated fairly. They want to be treated equitably and they want to be given the same opportunities as their fellow man. That's all that we're working towards. We're not trying to give anyone any advantages. We're just trying to remove the disadvantages that exist, unfortunately, in our world today. So if you can do anything and you can just be one thing, be kind. That's great. It's great advice. It's great to remind ourselves of that. It's funny, as I listen to you, I can't help but think about Dale Carnegie because the essence of Dale Carnegie is every single person has inherent value, inherent greatness, and every single person and we ought to respect and appreciate and value. That's exactly the, the, the message that you're sharing. Certainly, I appreciate it. I know our listeners are going to appreciate it. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.